Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Sunday Times bestselling author, activist and speaker, Laura Bates. In 2012, after a week filled with small and insidious incidents of sexism, Laura founded the Everyday Sexism Project. It quickly gained over 200,000 testimonies of gender inequality, and in 2014, Laura published her first book by the same name. Laura has gone on to publish multiple nonfiction books on the subject of gender inequality, including most recently, Fix the System, Not the Women, and Men Who Hate Women, a groundbreaking investigation into the world of incels and terrorism, which was named one of the best books of 2021 by Waterstones, The Guardian, and GQ. Laura is also a YA author, and today we are talking about her latest novel for young adults, Sisters of Sword and Shadow, and the important and powerful role that storytelling has in activism and changing the world. If you enjoy the podcast and want more, please do head over to my Substack to continue the conversation. The link is in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such it's such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so excited to talk about Sisters of the of Sword and Shadow, but also about all your other work as well. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I, I wanted to start first of all with um, you are a hugely successful nonfiction author, and I really want to know why YA. What is it about YA that you love? So I think I've always seen my writing as an extension of my activism. Um, I started writing nonfiction because I wanted to change people's minds, because I wanted to reach people beyond the confines of social media with awareness and ideas and catalysts for change. And um, all of that led me to going into schools and working with young people because so much of the um, everyday sexism, the kind of entries, the testimonies I've received have been from young people. Um, And it was when I went into schools that I started to realize that young people were facing a really unique set of challenges that weren't always directly addressed in that kind of adult sphere. Um, And I really just thought back to my own teens and realized that I wouldn't necessarily have been reading big nonfiction books. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily have even known what feminism was or been kind of engaging with those kinds of ideas, but I was absolutely devouring novels and fiction. And of course, all of the ideas that come along with them and the kind of confidence it gives you to challenge and question the world around you. So for me, it was suddenly a kind of light bulb moment of thinking maybe the way to reach young people is actually through fiction Mm. and through fictionalizing issues that affect them on a day-to-day basis, but are really hard for them to talk about. And actually talking about it happening to someone else can be such a good way in for them, a way to start a conversation. One of the things I'm most proud of is the number of schools who use my uh, young adult novels as a kind of catalyst for talking about these issues. Mm. It just seemed like a great way to reach teenagers and give them permission to challenge and question things without necessarily it having to be too close to home about their own experiences. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so true, isn't it? Because I think I thought that a lot about the nonfiction that I've done um, and and my desire to tell stories in a different kind of way. Because I remember when I wrote my first book, I thought um, this feels really important and really big, but I know a lot of people will never, ever read it because, well, I was writing about unpaid care and obviously a lot of unpaid carers don't, don't really feel they have time or energy to pick up a massive book. <laughs> but um, but the idea that we can use storytelling to kind of talk about a lot of the challenges that people are facing today, I think is a really important one. I actually personally love YA as a genre anyway, in terms of 
Um, and just as an adult, I still read YA. I absolutely love it. I feel like in some ways it's it's one of those genres that's um, probably extremely challenging to write in. Um, I'd be really curious to ask about that in general, whether you think that as well, because I feel like teenagers are an extremely discerning audience yes. and you can't pull the wool over their eyes. They can smell bullshit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. I totally agree. And I love way and I don't think it gets it due in terms of kind of really being respected and mm. appreciated. Um, but I think a huge amount of the audience for YA is actually adults. I think it has a huge crossover appeal. Um, and I think essentially it's so important that teenagers don't feel patronized, that they don't feel talked down to, but also that they don't feel that you're telling them what to think. That was one of the biggest challenges for me coming from a nonfiction background, yes. because yeah. so much of nonfiction writing is being quite kind of authoritative about saying, you know, think about this in a new way, consider this, this is right, this is wrong. Um, but in a fiction book, as soon as you do that, you're kind of overriding the whole point of allowing a reader to explore a story for themselves and come to their own conclusions. If you beat them over the head with it, if you make it about kind of a cause and issue, yeah. uh, then you've already lost them. And and there's no point, I think, writing fiction in that way. You might as well write a nonfiction book. So it's yeah. always been so important to me that when I moved into fiction, yes, I was dealing with issues that were important to me. And yes, they're, they are books that deal with these kind of same sort of issues that I deal with in my activism, but it has to be in such a different way. It has to be story driven. It has to be plot driven and character driven. It has to be first and foremost, absolutely the priority is that it's a really good story, that yeah. it's a page turner, that it's exciting, that you want to read it because otherwise there's no point doing fiction. You shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about let's talk about Sisters of Sword and Shadow then. This is a perfect opportunity to talk about exactly those things. I think one of the things I absolutely love about it, apart from its um the entire world that you create around it, um, is the fact that I felt as though um through Cass, the main character, we were allowed to think a lot of different things. Nothing yeah. in this book is black and white, which I think is it's really beautifully done. But first of all, give us a little quick uh, rundown of what the book is about. Okay, so the book is set during King Arthur's reign. It's very much a kind of Arthurian um, fantasy, but it isn't a retelling. It asks, you know, what if there had been circles of female knights at the same time that the Knights of the Round Table existed? And this is entirely plausible because we know almost nothing of that period. There are some sources that do talk about women who kind of rowdy women who turned up at jousting events and insisted on joining in. And of course, the period that we, you know, all that we know about that period is written by men. So I just wanted to really question and probe what if that whole kind of beautiful, brilliant legend around chivalry and brotherhood and morality and uh, imperfection and love, all of the richness of that legend that so many of us love so much what if all of that could be explored through a feminist lens and through women mm -hmm. and Cass is a very sheltered young woman she's uh lives a kind of very rural existence it's very much expected that she will kind of grow up and you know move from her being her father's property to another man's property and um on the morning of her older sister's wedding when she's kind of pondering this life that's set out for her um she has a chance encounter with a member of this kind of sisterhood this amazing kind of round table of knights who are women and 
And she has a kind of sliding doors moment where she has to make a split second choice. Mm. And she dives into the unknown. And um, it's a way into a world that is so much bigger and richer and more dramatic and exciting and powerful than I think she had ever dreamed was possible for her. Mm. And it explores the question of what if our idea of the history of, you know, our our country and these battles and this great male leader that we envisage isn't necessarily what really happened. Yeah. It's funny, as I was as I was preparing for this interview, I was trying, I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to describe it as fantasy. Cause actually, even though it's a it's an imagining, it's still yeah. feel it is a historical novel. I mean, these are all yeah. in there. I could imagine it is possible to happen. It's not about dragons and fairies and those kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is there is a sense that this is possible, like you say, because we don't we know very little of what was happening at the time. Um, and the way you've built the world, it's all built in a way that is plausible. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I really loved this idea of um of Angarad, who's is the kind of the person who started the sisterhood. Is a widow and this idea that she has to continue to pretend to be married and that her husband is away on business because because she as a widow she is incredibly vulnerable to being encroached on by other men in the area and that everything she does is about protecting the girls that come under her protection who she protects a huge amount of women um and that to me felt entirely plausible entirely plausible but also um incredibly it was such an alluring idea as well this idea that they've kind of essentially got themselves a keep and they've locked men out (laughs) and they can be themselves within those walls yes and that again I think that's something that kind of feels like such a fantasy for that time period but it's plausible like it's not impossible that that could have happened and um there were widows at that time and kind of subsequently who did kind of manage to hang on to their power after their husband's deaths. And I love that idea of women building a world for themselves. I love the intergenerational aspect of it. Mm. A lot of it is about older women protecting and kind of handing down wisdom to younger women and about kind of how they build their own rules within a society that's very much ruled by men and how they question some of those traditions and expectations. Um, But also, unfortunately, the kind of patriarchal outside world still encroaches on them in many ways and it's about how they kind of find ways to fight back against that Mm. so in so many ways for me it feels that it has so many parallels for what young women are facing today you know they are really strapping on their metaphorical armor pretty much every day to go to school to go online to be on social media Mm. and I think that young women today are also fighting to reimagine a future for themselves outside the confines of what remains a very constricting path that society lays out for them. Yeah. And um, I think one of the, and there's lots of sort of subtleties within it as well, of of course, not everyone, not all of the women agreeing on the right course of action. And there, there are some moral quandaries that come up for Cass, particularly about, about what how far is it is it okay to go to create a safe world for women um what what uh, what is everyone within that order willing to do um but one of the things i really liked about cass and our way into the story is that um is that cass is not from an incredibly deprived background she's from a you know a rural background and not a wealthy background but she has some comfort she's not abused by her family her family are quite nice to her she mm-hmm. adores her sister um she chooses to leave in that moment not because her life is so terrible but just because she wants something better and I loved that as a way in because I think sometimes we're told as women that it's okay to leave situations if they're awful but it's not okay to leave just because you don't want it 
Yes, that's so true. And we have such a prescribed idea of what success and failure look like for women, I think, particularly mm-hmm. within relationships. There's this idea that, uh, you know, that marriage is the kind of, and that heter- heterosexual marriage is kind of positioned as this be all and end all, this pinnacle of feminine achievement. And also that marriages ending are kind of form of failure or that, you know, choosing to become a single parent or choosing a different path, choosing to leave an unhappy relationship or just choosing to leave a relationship that isn't enough for you is is somehow seen as a failure. And I want young women particularly to grow up knowing that that narrative can really be turned on its head and it isn't it isn't greedy or outlandish or unladylike to want more and to really think about what serves you and the life that you want to build for yourself. And I think it is really hard to do that outside of a very specific societal template that has been so strongly foisted on us from such a young age, the kinds of magazines that are marketed to girls, the kinds of party outfits, the kinds of clothing, the kinds of stories and fairy tales, so much of it sends them that message in a very insidious way from such a young age. So I do think it's hard to step outside of that narrative. It's very hard. As someone who is divorced, and it was not because of anything horrific like abuse or anything like that, um, it's funny. I have felt so often, especially meeting other divorced women, often they'll say to me, oh, and they'll kind of caveat it like, oh, um, he left me or he had an affair or something like that. And um, like, it's almost like I'm allowed to enjoy my life because I wasn't the one who messed it up. I wasn't the one who messed up the marriage. So I'm allowed to. And it's funny, like I make a point of of almost being clear that no, that yeah. wasn't the case in my case, because I feel like we should talk about the fact that it's okay to just not want to be in a relationship that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't, you know, work yeah. you, doesn't work for the whole family. It doesn't work for any of us in the family. Um, but, and in fact, that I remember that I went to my high school reunion, actually the same year that I got divorced um, and sort of was telling people, oh yeah, I got divorced this year and like totally fine about it. And people were quite shocked that first of all, that I was honest about it and that I seemed fine. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's and such that, a, which is such an interesting. It was such an interesting reaction. Like they thought I should be hiding somehow that I shouldn't have been there. Yeah, because it's so kind of portrayed as this very specific thing, which is so weird because it doesn't in any way capture the plurality of people's experiences. I think that is starting to change. I think there yeah. are lots of women who are starting to challenge that narrative. Yeah. Um, like most recently, I think Anna Whitehouse has been speaking yeah. out about this in a really powerful and um, yeah, I, yeah, I've been I've been way. following along with that with with great interest um, yeah. because because it is this idea of um, of choice. It feels like although we're talking much much more about choice, it does mm-hmm. feel like there's a slow change of a choice, but with certain caveats. Yeah, um, and so hopefully that's that's changing a little more. Um, but one of the things I really wanted to ask you about as well as you know Cass and how her attitudes change over the course of being with this sisterhood and uh, one of the ways in which um it becomes obvious to her is that she gets to dress as boy a lot of the time when she's doing her training because they not only feed and clothe and house all these women at the sisterhood they also train them to um in self-defense and and to be become knights themselves um in order for them to earn their own income as well as uh, to protect themselves Yes. But one of the things she gets to do is to dress, you know, in in male clothing a lot of the time. And they still have to have an outward appearance of of appearing to be a normal court of women. And so they do sometimes dress as women as well. And she starts to begin to notice how differently she's viewed. 
um, how little freedom she has when she's dressed as a woman, how she, how unprotected she feels as a woman. Um, in, and as soon as she puts the clothing on, she starts to feel it. And even to the point, of course, she has to switch saddles as well to ride yeah. size saddle, which she decides is actually much more difficult than riding yes. the men's saddle. <laughs> but um, I found that her journey that she goes through to start really noticing what she had been carrying all her life and perhaps just carrying it without paying that much attention to it. Yes, I think, again, for me, that is so much kind of drawn from the work I do with young women and the reality of their lives. We voice so much on them without ever stopping to sit down and articulate it. And so it's just assumed and it's absorbed and it's kind of something that is very difficult to challenge. Um, I was in a school recently where I was working with a group of 14-year-olds and I was asking them how their life would be different if they were the opposite sex as a way to start them thinking about gender stereotyping and how it may have shaped their lives. And the boys talked about things like clothing and hobbies and sports in particular. Um, And then one of the girls put her hand up very bravely and she said, if I was a boy, I wouldn't be scared all the time. And she talked about carrying her hockey stick gripped in her hands when she walked home in the winter after practice because it was dark. And one by one, the girls started opening up about carrying their keys between their fingers, about not wearing a ponytail in case someone could grab it, about not wearing headphones so they could hear if someone came up behind them, about taking much longer routes home because they were better lit and texting each other when they got home safely and going to the bathroom in groups and keeping their hands over drinks and all of these things. And it was something that when I asked them if this was something that they'd experienced or thought about to put their hand up, every girl raised her hand. And then I said, keep your hand up if you've ever talked to anyone about this before. And they all put their hands down. Mm. That for me is the biggest tragedy. It's the fact that we don't even allow ourselves to contemplate the fact that this is abnormal or that it's wrong or that it shouldn't be this way. It is so much something that we're socialized into that we are really pushed into accepting as just part of the price that we pay for moving through the world uh, Mm. as women and girls. And so I wanted to explore that through CAS that sometimes it isn't until we have a really kind of uh, shocking change of perspective that that we are able to look afresh at things that we had considered to be normal. And I think that's a really really powerful, important message for for young people, especially. Mm. Um, So um, I wanted to ask you about the kind of research that you did for this book. Um, Tell me about it. Did you get to go and do some of these activities that that the women in the book get to do? I did, yes. Yeah. So I did a lot of reading about the period, of course, and about the kind of Arthurian myths and legends, um, a lot of which will come in a little bit more in the second book because it's a duology and we'll see a bit more of kind of Arthur and some of those characters that we know. Mm-hmm. But I also felt it was really important for me to get right. What did it mean for a woman in that period to engage in these forms of combat that were kind of traditionally reserved for men in terms of things like the weight of weapons yeah. uh, and how armor would fit on a woman? And uh, how might they, for example, use their kind of agility and flexibility uh, in combat with somebody of sort of a greater physical strength than them? So I went to uh, Warwickshire, where the International School of Riding is, and mm-hmm. I learned to ride. And then I learned to joust, like full on jousting oh with goodness. an enormous, <laughs> heavy um, wooden um, jousting 
uh, lance and I learned to I learned archery and sword fighting at the same time but mainly for me it was really about the jousting um that I think that's probably the only place in the country where you can go and actually learn to joust and you can use the kind of traditional tools that they used at that time so there's a thing called a quintain which is like a kind of metal sort of um model of a of a person holding a shield and it's on a kind of rotating base so you can ride at it and joust with it essentially and you can use your lance to um, push the shield and if you get it right then it spins around but it also has this kind of massive hanging sort of mace this sort of big metal spiked ball on the other side so when you push the shield and it spins around the ball comes for the back of your head so you have yeah. to keep going your horse very quickly which <laughs> isn't necessarily instinctive because your instinct is kind of to pull up so all of these kind of technical things that, that there's just no way I could possibly have captured them without having done it myself and I wanted to do it for the technical details but what took me by surprise was the emotional um experience of it Mm. and feeling really powerful and free and it feeling very liberating and of course that was important to kind of um allow that to sort of go into the book as well yeah I mean I really I loved that aspect of it as as Cass gets physically much stronger because she's you know doing all of this training um that how how that how she internalizes that how that makes her feel inside um with her strength and in fact actually after reading it it was just like oh god it's such a reminder of why it feels good to be fit you know because there's something about being physically strong that um and having the ability to to do something that you perhaps didn't believe that you were able to do that makes that feels really powerful yeah and I think that's that was so important for me because very gradually over the course of the book Cass learns that there is actually something very special about her that perhaps she isn't who she thought she was and I guess this is where the kind of fantasy element comes in that there is a kind of burgeoning power inside her that she doesn't really understand that she's not sure if it's kind of a force for good or if it's something quite scary Um, and it's almost like this kind of magic that comes out of her and that she can't really control Mm. and I think again for me just metaphorically that's just such a powerful and important message that young women have so much inside them that the world tamps down and tells them that they don't have and that when it comes out the world tells them that it's not appropriate you know or that anger is you know and sort of not seen as an appropriate emotion for women and power and authority and all of those things where women are told that they're bossy while men are seen as leadership material and I think that idea of thinking that there is something inside you that is so powerful and strong that you might not even quite understand, that you might even be a little bit scared of, but that you can kind of come to embrace Mm. uh, was really important for me to explore. And and that was one of the things I love so much about the original Arthur stories, you know, the way that he, he picks up Excalibur and there's this kind of magic that comes over him and he kind of is a warrior in a way that is beyond his own physical human abilities. And I love the idea of exploring what would that mean for a teenage girl yeah and there was even um a moment in in the book where it was kind of kind of funny but also incredibly sad where Cass who's witnessing some of the sisterhood um avenging some strangers um saving them from destitution and violence um and she asked them why don't you reveal yourselves because obviously they're all covered up as knights so nobody knows that they're women um why don't you reveal yourselves? These people are, these strangers are incredibly grateful to you, you know, just take your, take your helmet off. And they go, okay, well, let's show you what happens when we do that. (laughs) The moment they reveal that they're women, the strangers completely turn on them. Even though those 
those uh, knights have just saved them um, and have just proven their strength and proven their worth, um, they these strangers cannot they cannot com- commute uh, compute at all what is yeah. what they've just seen, um, and that to me felt like such a great way of exploring what still happens all the time for women and for you know and all kinds of other sec- intersectionalities of course as well yeah totally i mean that is sadly exactly what we still see today if you look at attitudes towards female politicians in particular or if you look at the you know huge number of experiments there was one recently i think where two extremely experienced sports pundits swapped twitter accounts for a week and the difference in the way that that people responded to them and to their commentary when they thought it was a man and when they thought it was a woman was just absolutely jaw-dropping and we just haven't come as far as we'd like to think that's partly why i love writing about periods historical periods because mm. I love help, helping people to see the parallels and to be quite shocked at how far we haven't come as well as the yeah. progress that we have made yeah absolutely yeah I think that you're absolutely right about historical fiction being such a really fantastic way of being able to explore um and quite starkly be able to kind of make parallels that we perhaps might feel like a bit of a leap otherwise um but um, can we let's go back to your other work, your work as a nonfiction uh-huh. writer and activist. Um, it all began with everyday sexism. Um, and that book came out, the original book came out in 2014, was it? The project yes. started in 2012, was it? And yes, then that's yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then from there you went on to write many other really incredible nonfiction books. I've actually seen you speak at Hey a couple of times. I've, uh-huh. I've told you that. Um, <laughs> um, but your latest um fix the system. Um I listening to the book because I li- I listened to the book. Um, listening to your initial, you start the book with a list, a list of all the things that you put up with as a child, as a tween, a teen, and a young person. Um, all the things that you, I guess, and we all accept as just part of our lot. Um, and here, hearing it all together, it's quite shocking. But this is. Um, but these are all very common experiences and not shocking at all, which is part of the basis of Everyday Sexism Project when it began. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the point. It's forcing people to see something through fresh eyes again. So it's it's realizing that I think we are so socialized from such a young age to dismiss, to diminish, to disbelieve, not to take seriously the things that happen to us as girls. You know, you're overreacting, you're making a fuss about nothing. It's just boys being boys. He just likes you. Well, it's your fault. What did you think when you put that clothing on this morning? You're wearing a short skirt. You're distracting the boys. You need to go home. You're the problem. Um, from such a young age, we really kind of gaslight girls on a national, on an international scale. And so for me, there is something really powerful and important about reclaiming our perspective of those experiences and how they shape us. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that, I think, is to recognize them as a continuum and to recognize the cumulative impact that they have, which, as you say, is exactly what everyday sexism was all about. It was about reframing the minor things that people really fail to take seriously um, amidst a much bigger context of why they matter and how they're connected to more serious forms of abuse and how cumulatively they still have a really significant impact. Um, And I think that writing it all down in one place is really cathartic and important. And I hope that it would give other women and girls permission to do the same thing Mm. and to accept that actually some of the impact that those things have had on us is profound Mm. and that that's okay and that that isn't your fault and that it wasn't right. Um, which just sounds like such a simple thing, but actually I think 
is really transformative. And it's been so clear from the experiences of people who've shared their stories with everyday sexism that just the experience of having your story heard and held and believed mm. and being part of a collective voice of others saying, this has happened to me too. It's mm. not your fault. You're not the only one. You weren't imagining it. That the impact of that can be really incredibly profound on, on women's lives. Um. I can imagine that doing events where you meet readers are incredibly powerful, but also I imagine you've had to hold a lot of stories over the years, which must also come with a huge amount of responsibility, but also, um, I guess, also a, a certain level of stress as well for what you've had to contain for others. And how is that for you as an author um, taking on um, and kind of listening to so many quite horrific stories as well? It's really complex, I think. It's a real mixture of things because partly there's a sense of of real pride and I feel very, I feel really honoured and moved that people have shared their stories with me because that is no small thing. Mm. For so many people, it's the first time that they have felt able to speak about something that's happened to them or to write it down. And I know that the cost of that is really significant and it's often a very selfless act so often people have shared those stories because they don't want it to happen to someone else yeah. I think partly there's a real sense of um of privilege and of responsibility there that I feel that I really want to make sure that I am doing justice to those people who have done something really courageous that I'm finding ways to honor their voice to raise their voice to help people hear their stories and recognize them and hopefully to use them in really productive ways so that there is a real benefit to it a tangible kind of um outcome that because they've been so brave and shared their story somebody else won't go through the same thing because it's changed something so i think all of that feels really positive and it feels like a huge privilege to be able to do that um but of course it does come with a quite significant emotional toll. As you say, one of the things that's really helped me with that is that I work very closely with um, Rape Crisis. I'm the patron of the kind of Somerset and Avon um, area rape and sexual abuse support called SARSAS. And they very kindly, um, we did an event actually for them in aid of them. And at the end, after seeing some of those um disclosures and the way that people did come forward and tell their stories um one of the very amazing women who worked there said have you ever had disclosure training and they and they gave me um some training which was incredibly helpful yeah. because you yeah. also you know primarily first and foremost want to be sure that you are supporting someone in the right way and that you yeah. are signposting them to the right resources and i think that's really important and i think for me the other thing that has helped enormously has been having a network of other women who do this work, mm -hmm. other women who are brilliant, wonderful friends, uh, so many different women who are working on so many different campaigns and experiencing similarly challenges with yeah. their work. And that, that's so wonderful and supportive and cathartic and makes a huge difference. Yeah. Oh, that's really good to hear. Um, because you've written about some incredibly challenging topics, um, um, when you wrote Women Who Hate Men, uh, sorry, Men Who Hate Women, <laughs> <laughs> slip of the tongue, um, um, that which was which which dove a lot into kind of incel culture and um, and extreme online misogyny, um, something that that we've seen, you know, growing um, at a really really terrifying rate. Um, 
diving into that work um, must be incredibly emotionally challenging, um, just as it is, I'm sure, for anyone who works in kind of um, in sexual abuse survivors and anything like that. So is when you would, when you're doing that work, um, were you very, were you able to put things in place to make sure that you were both physically and emotionally safe when you were publishing that book? Yeah. Um, yes, to a degree. Um, so that book, unfortunately, did lead to a really significant uptick in the amount of um, abuse and the amount of explicit threats I received. Um, I had some really great support. My publishers um, were very supportive. Um, the police were very supportive. Um, essentially, what happened after that book was that there were so many threats and they were so specific and they were so considered sort of credible um, but tracing them was incredibly difficult because mm. of the anonymity of the internet and the ways in which it kind of protects and enables abuse. And so at that point, the police put various different measures in place, including panic alarms in my home and various other things that I'm not allowed to explicitly talk about. Um, and that is really challenging, I think. You know, I don't think we should gloss over it because... I hope that we will one day live in a world where that isn't the case, having that baggage of feeling unsafe really at all times, every time that you answer the door, every time that you're doing an event and you see someone put their hand in a pocket, you know, that does have a really significant mental toll because mm. you think about it all the time. When people are sending you, you know, pictures of weapons and telling you that they're coming for you and <clears throat> it's publicly advertised that you're going to be in a certain place at a certain time doing a book event it's very hard then to fully concentrate on that event and not to have it just running through the back of your mind really all the time and I think it takes a really really significant toll so I feel it's so important I think that we do carry on talking about the impact that has because mm -hmm. I really want us to be vigilant to becoming desensitized to it yeah we are so used to the idea that female politicians face enormous abuse that Diane Abbott in particular faces mm -hmm. over half of all the abuse that goes to female politicians put together you know the the racist and sexist abuse that black women face online in particular and I don't want us to reach a point where we see that as part and parcel of the internet yeah. in the same way that we've seen these other things as normal parts of being a girl I think we should really challenge the idea that that is a feasible sustainable you know way to continue going forward that women in the public eye simply have to accept that yeah want us to really continue putting pressure on the government to regulate putting pressure on social media platforms to take responsibility mm. to hopefully find ways to to, to deal with that problem mm. um, that's exactly why I wanted to ask you about it because I think um we can very easily become complacent about online abuse now because we we are seeing it every single day in the palm yeah. of our hands um I'm and I think as someone who's who doesn't routinely because I don't put myself out there in the way that that activists do in the way that female politicians do um, find myself reporting, 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 because it feels like, okay, that it feels tiny. It feels absolutely tiny, but it feels like if that's something I can do and the person who has posted that post, who's receiving that abuse doesn't have to do it and I can do it for them. It just feels like a tiny thing that we all can do to support each other to be safer online. Um, that and, of course, the activism that many people are doing to put pressure on the, the platforms themselves to police the platforms much better. 
Yes. And particularly, um, there's an amazing charity called Glitch UK, which is a brilliant charity founded by Shay Yakubowo, who herself had experienced a huge amount of online abuse and has become the most incredibly powerful campaigner. And that whole organization, they're doing so much to tackle it, to keep the spotlight on it, to keep the pressure on. Um, they work very closely with the End Violence Against Women Coalition to really put pressure for the online safety bill to actually recognise the gendered implications of online abuse. Um, they do really powerful intersectional work, particularly focusing on women of colour and their experiences of online abuse. And it's a brilliant, brilliant charity. So anyone who's interested in kind of mm. thinking about this more or supporting that work, definitely recommend looking them oh I'll definitely put a link in the show notes thank you so much for letting us know about that um but so I also wanted to talk about your work um first of all um your work across activism and writing in multiple genres um and how all of that functions together because you're also um a speaker um you chair events um you're on boards you do you there's so much to your work um I wanted to talk specifically about some of your work in the literary world. Yes. Um, you're a vice president of Hay, um, but you've also um, been a judge on a number of awards, including the Women's Prize um, and the Giles and Auburn's, Auburn Prize. Um, I wanted to talk to you specifically about, I guess, um, what each of our responsibility, I guess, working in publishing is to ensure that it's both safe to publish as women, but also um, to get as many diverse voices out there as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just such an incredibly important part of my life and my work. I think that books and stories are phenomenally powerful, phenomenally important, not necessarily always seen for the real power that they have to kind of change minds and shift attitudes and change culture. Um, and I think I feel very, very passionate about the Women's Prize and the work that it does and the importance of raising women's voices, recognising how historically and even still today, um, women writers still face such double standards when it comes to the categorization of their work, to reviewing mm. their work, to the way in which their work is perceived, particularly if it deals with issues that are kind of domestic compared to men writing about the same topics. Um, there's just so much there. I think because of everyday sexism, my work has always been centred in and started really the very starting point of it was the power that stories have to, mm. to change the world. So it's a very kind of natural sort of holistic thing. I think that literature is such an integral part of my work and of my activism. But absolutely, as you say, publishing still has such a long way to go in terms of really being inclusive, being diverse, changing things for everyone and not just for a very specific cohort of women. Um, I think that's why the kind of some of the initiatives that the Women's Prize run, like the Discoveries Prize and the yeah. way that they um, really actively try to encourage people to feel able to write and to enter and to be supported who might not have seen themselves as writers or thought that it was a world that was open to them is really important and inspiring. And it's also something that I feel really passionate about supporting through Bergstrom Studio and the, the grant that they give to kind of try and support underrepresented writers as well, which I'm a part of supporting. I think there are so many different ways that we can hopefully <clears throat> play a role in in sharing those platforms mm -hmm. and sometimes it's about the things that people see like you know the choices you make about <clears throat> judging things or supporting grants or that kind of thing but I also think it's just as important what you do when people aren't watching yeah behind the scenes you know and that might look like 
um, being invited to do an interview or sit on a panel for something and saying, actually, I'm not the best person for this. Or actually, you know, this is a panel of four white, non-disabled women that isn't representative of the full experience you're trying to capture. And here are five names of people who would be absolutely brilliant, bringing different perspectives. And, you know, it's also about the things that aren't necessarily kind of um, performative, but still make a real difference if each mm. of us does a few of those things you know if each of us is mindful of those issues in what we're doing then I think change happens faster yeah absolutely I was really particularly excited to see the women's prize have started the non-fiction prize which yeah. is so exciting I think non-fiction is one of those areas that women are so vastly underrepresented in media in non-fiction yeah. um they are writing non-fiction but they're not necessarily being shouted about <laughs> yeah. um so that was particularly exciting but I think there's something in particular about the model of the women's prize where the panel of judges changes every year and the genre that each of the judges come from is different as well which I think is a really interesting flavor a different flavor every single year to the to the long list and the short list as well which I think is particularly interesting and I think there are prizes in other um other other creative industries that could definitely take a leaf out of the women's prize book for doing that um Um, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, we could go on and on, but, but I will let you go. Um, <laughs> Sisters of Sword and Shadow is such a delight. And um, of course, it's a duology. And I'm I'm just now desperate for the next one because I want to, <laughs> I want to finish the story. Um, when so so this one is out on November um 9th. 9th. 9th? Yeah. And um and so listeners, um, it will be out by the time this episode is out. It should just be out. But when can we expect the follow-up to this one? Is it? Is It It won't be too long to wait. It should be out next year. Oh, great. Excellent. Um, well, um, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, and for everything that you do as well, which is just so brilliant and important. <laughs>